The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ricky, production lead here at the IAI. And I'm Charlie, and I'm the senior producer here at the IAI. Today we've got The Making of Reality, featuring philosopher and critic of realism, Hilary Lawson. This interview took place at Hey, How the Light Gets In Festival 2019, the festival we produce here at the IAI. Charlie, tell us a little bit about this interview. So this debate explores Hilary Lawson's theory of closure and provides an account of how we enclose the world with our language, thought and categories. And he further argues that there's no such thing as truth, no such thing in reality, but he still argues that we can maintain reason and that we can view things that are better and worse and chart a better path forward. Without truth and without reality, what are we basing reason on? I think we're basing reason on a shared understanding of what we all want and how we get what we want. But we don't have to maintain some kind of objective truth that's out there. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit i.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, it's time to welcome Hilary Lawson to Philosophy for Our Times. I'm Hilary Lawson. I'm the founder of the Institute of Art and Ideas, and I'm a non-realist philosopher. I'm interested in metaphysics and the big overall story that we use to describe the world. And on your non-realist philosophy, what is closure theory? We've tended to think that the world is something out there and it's divided into bits. And the puzzle of life is to work out what those bits are. And indeed, the puzzle for human knowledge has been to try and work out what those bits are. I think that we've, in the 20th century, discovered that we can't actually arrive at an account of what is out there because we are embedded in a perspective and there are an indefinite number of perspectives. And so I take the rather surprising starting point that let's consider the world not as being something that's divided into bits, but is something other. It's some unspecified other. And that what we do is we close this, and what I call this unspecified other openness, to avoid us thinking that it's something in particular. And we close the openness of the world into our ideas of thoughts and things and properties and so forth. And what we do in the closing of the openness of the world is we give ourselves ways of intervening, but at the same time, we cut ourselves off from the openness. So it's a sort of two-way exercise that we need closures in order to intervene, but they also, in a way, take us further away from openness. So, you know, if you just take any 
uh, any object. You might say, well, it, it, it's, a, it's a bottle. You can ask me what sort of bottle it is. You can ask me to pass the bottle. You can uh, say what's in it. Where was it manufactured? You can ask all sorts of things about what it is. But you might say, you might describe it not as a bottle at all. You, you might describe it as a, as a weapon, in which case it's, well, is it an effective weapon? Does it do the damage that you intended it to? You might say it's um, an environmental disaster, in which case you would say, well, just how dangerous is it as an environmental disaster? You know, uh, it, where does it fall on the scale? If you were a physicist, you might describe it in terms of its molecular structure. So all of these different ways of holding this bit of the world are closures, I would say. They're ways of closing openness. And the stuff, the openness, this whatever's there, is all of these things. It's like the potential to hold them in those ways. So I think we have to give up the idea that there's, there are bits out there that we name, and instead thinking of the world as being open, that we close. And those closures have value, and they can be refined, and they can get better. But they're not somehow an ultimate description. They're a way of holding the world rather than it being how it ultimately is. So if we can't avoid closing up the world, but it means that openness escapes us, what is the point in trying to understand the world? Because we can refine our closures. Once we've chosen one, we can ask all sorts of questions about it. If we hold something in a particular way, we can say, well, what sort of example of this is? What sort of bottle is this is? What sort of person this is, whatever the closure is. So we, we refine those closures, and those closures then enable us to do more. The attempt to deepen our closures and make them achieve the outcome that is where we, we want from them, to, to enable us to use that frame, that vocabulary in a way that's valuable, is immensely powerful. It's just that I think that we shouldn't think that they are an ultimate description of the world. They're a way of holding it, and there's an indefinite number of other ways of holding it. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Which have different qualities and different values. And I think also the other thing is that closure is never the same as openness. It's a different sort of stuff. I think it's a category mistake to think they're the same sort of thing. They're just different sorts of things. So if you look closely at whatever the closure is, it will never be as the world is. So you can always find ways in which your closure fails. They're always going to fail. There's never going to be a closure where we think, oh, yeah, we've, got, we've sorted it now. It, it, there's always an infinite gap between closure and openness. But trying to refine them and make them more effective for whatever purpose we want is an immensely valuable exercise, just as finding the ways in which they don't work. I think the idea that we close off the world in these ways would sound familiar to a lot of people. 
but could you explain what openness is? I'm not. I'm a not. I'm a non-realist. So I'm a critic of the idea that our ideas reflect things that are out there in the world. So the question is, what's the alternative to realism? And I would describe myself, therefore, as a post-realist or a non-realist. And that's because I can't tell you what is going on other, as it were, than realism. I can't say, well, it's like this, because if I could, then I would be a realist again. I would be telling you that's what it is out there. But it seems to me that our experiences are not descriptions of the world. They're not like mirrors of the world. They are a causal response to the world. So when your eye responds to the world and one of the hundred million neurons or whatever fires, that neuron is responding in one particular way to everything that's out there. So it takes all of the openness of the world and it does one thing. And we hold the world as that one thing. In fact, of course, we hold a whole load of neurons together as, say, a patch of blue. And all of those neurons won't be firing in exactly the way, same way, and they won't be blue. But what we do is we hold things as a single thing. But the world's nothing to do with that thing. It's not a description. So when I use the word openness, I am, would be saying that it's an unspecified other. And I'm not saying that there's no, there's nothing out in it's all in our heads. There's plenty of stuff out there, but it's not differentiated. It's language that differentiates things into objects and things and properties and all of that sort of stuff. But what's out there is a different sort of thing. And the way of trying to give an idea of what it's like is to say, let's just imagine that it's an unspecified other and a way of thinking about it is to think it as being open and full of potential. And we, we close that potential with our closures, but we can't. If I could tell you what openness was, then I wouldn't be a non-realist. I would be a realist again. And I think we just have to give up the idea that we can say, as it were, how it ultimately is in favor of this account, which enables, I think, a way of understanding why it is we have different perspectives, why people can have such radically different views and all think they're right. And, and indeed to point to perhaps other ways that we could interact so that we can try and stand in the place of other perspectives rather than thinking that there's a correct answer and somebody's got it wrong and somebody's got it right. If perspectives become refined over time, what is the aim if there's no sort of objective truth or end truth? What are they being refined towards? Well, I think that we are alive and we are trying to operate in the world. And so our closures are designed to help us do what we want to do. And I think we want to do all sorts of things. There's an indefinite number of things that we can be wanting to achieve with our closures. And personally, have you felt that recognising the openness of the world has made you able to accept other perspectives more? I certainly think the framework of openness and closure has influenced the way that I think about everything and the way that I interact the world. And I think it does mean that you have a way of being able to make sense of what otherwise seems to be a very conflictual and 
chaotic world. In your work, you've experimented with using visual means of applying the framework. I wonder if you could explain a bit more about how you've done that. My career has been split between an academic one and the engagement with philosophy and one in programming and making, making programs and documentaries. And so I had the experience of filming events. And I wondered whether there was a way, when you film something, you're always looking for narrative. I think, mean, what's happening here? Is it somebody crossing a road? Is it a burglary? Is it, what am I trying to convey? What's the narrative? And as viewers, we are always trying to spot that narrative. And we have thousands of hours of experience of trying to spot the narratives in images. So I wondered whether there was a way that we could film things that enabled us not to engage in closure. Could you film something which didn't somehow tell you how to look at it? And so I was intrigued by that idea and thought maybe there is a way of doing which avoids narrative. So the early video paintings that were generated were of images where you might be tempted to think, oh, this is a picture of a sky or of a river. But in fact, there are lots of layers of movement going on and you fight with your desire for closure. What, what's happening? Is something going to come by? Is this a picture of a, a canoe? You know, what, 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 what's going to happen in this picture of a, a, a river? But it doesn't close in that sort of way. So that's how the, the video painting movement developed from those initial ideas. And in some ways, I think it reflects what I think happens in other areas of art. So poetry, for example, avoids closure. If you had a poem, like you know, a line of a poem like, Oh Rose, Thou Art Sick, and somebody said, well, actually, what this means is this, the rose that's a flower has got some disease. This would not be poetry. The whole point of poetry is that it's open. As soon as you close it into a meaning, it's no longer poetry. It's, it's a description. It's not what it is. And so uh, I wondered whether we could do that with video and film. Could we, in a sense, create poetry on film? And that's what we were trying to do. And do you think you were successful in being able to do that? I think some of the, some of the strongest, most interesting video paintings certainly do that, yes. Even though the person that's created that video painting has chosen a specific place, there might not be narrative in it, but there's definite control of what the viewer is seeing. Oh, of course. And more than that, I mean, we uh, attached titles to the image, which are, of course, forms of closure. But the strange way that openness and closure work is that if you just are in openness, which some people try and attain, so uh, there are obviously movements in art which were like white on white images, you know, like trying to have nothing in the frame. And there are forms of meditation which are engaged in trying to have nothing to avoid all closure, as it were. But if you try and avoid closure altogether, then certainly as an art form, you are left with nothing. <laughs> and you, you sort of like have everything and nothing. And you have to close to some degree in order to be able to be engaged in that transition. So I think maybe a more refined version of what I was saying before would be that we are on the cusp of openness and closure. And we find a way to, to play with those oppositions in order to have the outcomes that we're looking for. 
And so, as well as the personal and philosophical ramifications of your work, what about in the realm of politics? We're used to hearing that it's a very divided time or tribal time. Does your theory of closure have a part to play in politics today? It certainly, I think, changes one's approach in the sense that I would try to encourage a dialogue between people that didn't assume that there was a right answer, that the very idea of someone thinking my story is the only one, you know, this is the truth, is I think a dangerous notion. And what we should try and do is stand in the place of other people. I mean, closures are metaphors for the world. And I think that we should try and stand in the place of a, another person's metaphor, if you like, and explore it. And that doesn't mean to say we accept it, so we may think, no, no, I, I don't like this metaphor at all. I don't like its consequences. Have you considered that it means this? Have you considered, how does it account for this issue over here? How does it work? So it's not that it, it stops there being dispute. Of course, there's going to be dispute. We're going to have different ways that we want to hold the world. But I think it does encourage a engagement with an alternative perspective. And it also allows for a proliferation of perspectives, that it's not like, well, there's a correct way to see things, that, that there are different perspectives. But I wouldn't say that all perspectives are equally valid. I think that we have to get inside those perspectives and see what they're like, and then, and then see, do we like using them? You know, if we like using them and they achieve the outcomes that we want, and it has an outcome for the world that we want, that's a good perspective. <laughs> yes, I think it does have consequences. And is there one thinker that's been particularly important for you in your own philosophy and work? Well, I wouldn't say there's, there's, there's one thinker. I was responding to the primary uh, figures in 20th century philosophy. My own outlook was a consequence of seeing what I thought had happened with Wittgenstein and indeed where continental figures like Derrida and uh, previously in the late 19th century figures like Nietzsche, Heidegger, of how they had tried to deal with the problem of the nature of the world. And I felt that most of those figures that I've mentioned had come to a view that we couldn't describe how things work, but they didn't offer a description of how we should hold it. And they didn't do that because they felt they were trapped in a self-referential puzzle, that if they said how they thought the world was, they would somehow be trying to do something they couldn't do. They'd come to the conclusion that language couldn't describe the world, and therefore the thing to do was somehow avoid saying how it actually was. And that's one version of it. Wittgenstein, I think, was certainly in that position in his later work. Derrida may be engaged in a constant deconstruction of any offer, offering that you did put forward. Nietzsche engaged in a certain sort of anarchy of suggesting lots of different ones. So they had different responses to this overall insight that we can't really say how it ultimately is. And I was both convinced by the first bit that we can't say how things ultimately are, but was unhappy with the idea that we should just avoid saying anything at all as a result. Because I think that we can't 
achieve that in any case. I think that figures like Wittgenstein and Derrida, we only really understand their position by giving them an overall metaphysical position which they are refusing to state. If we really take them at face value and we take them as avoiding any position at all, then, well, what are they saying? And so I thought, no, we have to try and give an account of our circumstances, even though we know that it will be in some sense temporary and will in some sense fail. But it's as good as we can do at the moment. I think all of those figures have been very influential for me in trying to frame how I think we might go about making sense of the world now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.